0: to see your smiling faces, even if it's behind a mask, you still look pretty. Uh, my name is Ben, I'm a lead pastor here, we're glad that y'all can be with us today as we worship Jesus. If you want to grab your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, it's in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6, towards the middle of your Bible. We're continuing a series this morning in the book of Isaiah, and as you're turning there, I just want to encourage you, there's a lot going on next weekend at Strong Tower, so if you didn't catch that, next Friday is the men's ministry event, the Burgers with Your Brothers, and then Saturday is a work day. Uh, that's for anybody. You can bring your kids, hang out, uh, as we, we're we going to do some landscaping around the, the property here, um, and then Sunday, next Sunday, is the new members class, so if you've been... Uh, visiting for a little while and and are ready to learn more about our church and want to find out what it means to be a member here, we'd be glad to have you sign up for that. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, A Vision of the King. A Vision of the King. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you uh, for your word today. Thank you that you are our great king. You are holy, holy, holy. As you are high and lifted up, you are exalted above all. And so as we come into your presence to listen to what you might say in your word, we pray that you would Have mercy upon us, have grace upon us. First of all, grace to show us ourselves, that in your presence we might know truly who we are, both in our sin, but in our salvation, in the new uh, life that you've given to us. God, help us to see that. Open our eyes today in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of dihydrogen uh, monoxide? It's been around a long time, and uh, it, it got in the news a couple years ago. I think it was 97, actually, so it's been more than a couple years. But it was real big in the news because there was a young man who was at his high school science fair, and he did his whole project around starting a petition to ban this substance. He was starting a petition that he was passing around his school and it was telling all the dangerous things that could happen from this substance. He was doing some research, and this is what he found. He says it may cause severe burns, accelerates the corrosion and rusting of many miracles or many metals, and has been found in the tumors of terminal cancer patients. And despite all these dangerous things, he goes on to find in his research that it's still being used as an industrial solvent and coolant, and in the production of styrofoam, and even as a fire retardant. Now, for those of you who did better in chemistry than me, you, you kind of know what, where this is going. That That's the technical term for H2O, also known as water. And so he was able to start this whole petition, get hundreds of signatures to ban water, because people were hearing the, the description and they're hearing all the dangerous things that water could do, like drowning and all these things, right? And they're like, yeah, we gotta get rid of that. Whatever that is, we gotta get rid of it. But the problem, and it's kind of a funny little story that made the news, but but the problem is it's it's so common, right? We can get so familiar with something that that we don't see the other things about it. And so when someone starts to describe something to us from a a different angle, a different perspective, we don't even recognize it. And it can be dangerous. Things like, I mean, it happens all the time, right? You think about your job. Maybe some of you have been in a job for a while at some point in your life, and and you get familiar with the job enough to know your way around the job, and you kind of know the ins and outs, and then they hire a new person. And the new person comes in and, and you get assigned to train them or, or you're kind of around them and you hear their questions and they're asking all kinds of questions like, why do we do this and why do we do it that way and what is this? And, and you start to realize, I, I don't know why we do it that way. I, we've always done it that way. You know, and you start to realize you've been doing this so long you're not really sure why you do what you do because you're so familiar with it. I mean, it happens in marriages sometimes, right? You first get married, and you're, 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 every, everything's new. You're so excited, you're noticing everything. You notice the way she holds her fork at dinner. You, you notice the, the types of jokes he likes to tell. You, you notice the way she laughs. All, all these things, you, you notice everything, and then a couple of years go by, a couple of different jobs, maybe some kids get thrown in the mix. All these things happen, and then if you're not careful, you don't notice very much at all. You've kind of grown so familiar with one another, you take a lot of things for granted. And it can get real dangerous, right? It's the same thing with God. That you can grow so familiar with Him, you don't see Him anymore. You grow so familiar that you would miss Him. You don't notice Him. You don't see, like, right when you first started following Jesus, you, you noticed everything. You were reading His Word, and everything's popping out, and everything's exciting, and, and you're just eating it up. You're, you're praying all the time. You're seeing God work in your life. You're seeing God answer prayers in other areas, and, and everything seems so noticeable, and then you go on, and time goes on, and familiarity sets in, and you have to be very intentional to see things to open your eyes beyond the familiar. And so we're coming to this text today following uh, last week as we began the series in Isaiah, and we're coming to a critical scene in Isaiah where uh, he he has this vision of God that that breaks all of his familiarity. And actually, scholars say that this vision in chapter 6 is the structure for the whole book of Isaiah, that this is kind of the foundational point And you see this vision of the king shape these different sections of Isaiah. So just to give you a heads up real quick, if you're taking notes, as we go through this series, chapters 1 through 39 give kind of the the king is coming to bring judgment. That's the major theme in those first 39 chapters. The king is coming to bring judgment. And so the opening of Isaiah is pretty heavy. There's a lot of talk of, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And then it turns real sharp in chapter 40, and now there's this comfort. And you see in chapter 40 to 55 that the king is coming to comfort the people who are now afflicted because of the judgment. So he's talking about the, the exiles in, in Babylon and, and talking about all these things that are going to happen because God's comfort is coming. And then the final section, sixty six or 56 to 66, is about the king who's coming to restore. He's coming to restore all that was broken and all that was messed up because of their sin. And so you see the whole book is shaped on this vision of a holy king, a king that's unlike any other, and it breaks their categories. And so I want to ask this question, how can an encounter with God transform us? How does this encounter with God, this holy king, transform us as people? And so first we're going to look at what it means to see God. If you're taking notes, the first point, seeing God. Look at verse 1. It says this. Isaiah begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple." Now, the year that King Uzziah died was 740 BC. And, and if you know from the Old Testament that King Uzziah was a long and prosperous king. In fact, he, he was reigning so long that Israel had grown in their stature and, and things were happening that were good. But at the end of his reign, uh, he came into some troubled waters. We talked last week about how the Assyrian Empire was pushing in from the north. And, and he's starting to feel this pressure and this tension that there might be war on the horizon. And so everybody's a little anxious, and then he dies. And now everybody's panicking. Everybody's wondering, okay, what's going to happen with the Assyrians? Uzziah was the one who was protecting us. He was our powerful, great king. And now he's gone. And Isaiah sees a vision. As soon as he dies... He, he, he compares the two. He, he brings out this contrast. Uzziah died, but there's another king on the throne. And he sees this vision where this king never dies, and this king's throne never ends. This king is unlike any other king that we've ever had. In fact, the Assyrian kings, they, they used to have this practice where they would build these multi-tiered platforms for their, their kings. And on top of the platform, they would have this massive throne at the highest point. And it was a show of power, right? It was to say that the Assyrian Empire has now come, and and we are the most powerful. We've ascended above everybody else. Well, Isaiah sees a king with greater power, and you can tell by the way he describes him. You can tell by the description of his robe. Uh, One of the first internationally televised, as far as I understand, events in history was the coronation of Queen, Queen Elizabeth in 1953. And there's been a lot of uh, you know, notoriety now with the Netflix series, The Crown. Everybody's obsessed with the royal family and all that. And you can watch it on the, on the series, but if you watch it live uh, on YouTube, you watch the live broadcast, you see uh, these people who are just oohing and aahing over all the, the wealth and the pomp and the circumstance of Queen Elizabeth. And, and you see this whole ceremony centered around her exaltation. And one of the things that they were... Uh, stuck on as they're describing it was her robe. And they were saying that her robe, it, it, it took eight months, eight months to create, eight months of research and, and planning and, and all the intricate fabric work that they had to do. It, they say it took 3,000 hours to make her robe. It's incredible. And so here she's walking into Westminster about to ascend up the throne and behind her is this incredible, majestic robe and all these attendants are carrying it and it's extending, I don't know, 10, 12 feet or something behind her and it's just gorgeous. And it's a show of her power. But do you hear what Isaiah says? Do you hear what he sees? He says, I'm seeing a God whose robe, just the hem of it fills the whole temple. Just just the corner of it fills everything you can see. He's saying this God-king is unlike any other king. And then he goes on to describe the scene around him. He says there's these angels, these seraphim, which means burning ones. And and they're flying around the throne worshiping God. They're saying what we just sung. It says that one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, Hebrew uh, would use repetition for emphasis, right? It, it would repeat things to say this is important, but here it repeats something for three times, the only time in the Old Testament. Holy, holy, holy. Nowhere else in the Old Testament. We, we don't see God say, or, or about God, we don't see it say, uh, God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or justice, justice, justice. Only Holiness gets this kind of emphasis. Why holiness? Well, holiness is is the word that means different or unique or set apart. And so, if you want to think about it like this, holiness is God's uh, godness applied to all of his attributes and everything that he does. In other words, it's what sets everything about him apart, So that his his love is holy, his mercy is holy, his justice is holy. All of the attributes and actions that he does are set apart as different. And so these, these angels are flying around the throne, kind of straining at the leash of language to say, I don't know how to describe it any better than this. There's no one like him. There's nothing like him, that he is God alone. He's not just similar to us, but a little bit better. He's a different category. His holiness means he's holy other. Author A.W. Tozer said this We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with the single cell and going on up to the fish, to the bird, to the animal, to the man, to the angel, to the cherub, and then to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is finite while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. You hear that? He's saying that the gap, the gulf between us and God is, it's immeasurable, it's indescribable, it's incomprehensible, incomparable. All these words that that mean it, you just can't get to it. As the old church folks used to say, he's God all by himself. All by himself. That's what it means, that he's holy, holy, holy holy and in fact holiness is this quality about God that that belongs exclusively to him now you might say well I thought there's other things that are holy in the Bible right like there's a holy land there's a holy temple there's holy people you're right but but listen to me the only reason that something is holy another person or another thing the only reason that it's holy is because of its relation to God does that make sense that it gets its holiness derived from the source of holiness, who is God. And so the only reason that the land is holy is because it's God's land. The only reason that the temple is holy is because it's God's temple. The only reason that his people are holy is because they're God's people. That, that's what it means that, that because they're in relation to Him, that, that His holiness is attached to them now so in such a way that they become holy, but without Him, there is no holiness. Yeah. This is what makes God irreplaceable. right? There's nothing like Him in all creation. There's no love like His love because it's holy love. There's no wisdom like his wisdom because it's holy wisdom. There's no power like His power because it's holy. Power, right? God's holiness is this unique, mysterious, unordinary experience that, that Isaiah has. And so it's both fascinating but terrifying that you'd come in contact with something you've never experienced. Some, someone unlike anything else in your life. And in fact, when you come in contact with a holy God, you can never leave the same. It will change you in some way. It will leave you different than when you came. And this is what happens to Isaiah. Because when you see God in His holiness, you begin to see your own unholiness. And this is the second point, seeing God or seeing guilt. Look at verse 5. It says this, And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I love this because God's holiness creates a crisis for Isaiah. Right, He comes into contact with this holy God. And previously in chapter 5, if you remember from last week, he was pronouncing woes on the people of God. He was pronouncing woe to you, woe to you. All these things are happening. And you remember, woe is a funeral term. It was something you would pronounce at a death saying that it was kind of this mixture of anger and sadness and grief. You're you're grieving over the loss of something, and and he pronounces that over God's people, but now he's saying it about himself. He's saying not just woe to you, but woe to me, because I am now undone. And, And I love how the message paraphrases it. It says, doom. It's doomsday. I'm as good as dead. Every word I've ever spoken is tainted. It's blasphemous. That's his response. Isaiah is undone as he's in the presence of this Holy One. God's presence moves him to see himself, and he begins to confess his sin. Not only his own sin, the sins of his people. He he begins to, to confess his individual sins and the corporate sins. He says, all of us are unclean because I have seen God. One of my favorite movies from the 90s, was Jurassic Park, classic movie. It's just one of the best movies from the 90s. Jurassic Park, and there's this mo or the scene in the movie where I think it's right towards the beginning. But the the world class paleontologist, uh, I think his name was Alan Grant, uh, Doctor Alan Grant. He he was the guy who would spend his whole life studying these incredible creatures and he knew every fossil and every species and everything, every detail about every dinosaur. He'd been studying his whole life and then he gets brought to the Jurassic Park Island. And when he comes to the island and they're driving him out to see the dinosaurs and he comes into into contact face to face with the dinosaur for the first time, he has nothing to say, nothing. He's just overwhelmed. He kind of starts to stutter and stammer out of his silence. He says, it's a dinosaur, right? Like, that's all he can get out. It's a dinosaur. Why? Because he had been studying his whole life in books and pictures and different artifacts. He knew all the details and the intricacies about them, but he had never seen one face to face. And he literally falls down because he can't contain it this is what happens to isaiah isaiah had been studying his whole life about this god he knew the details he knew the texts. He, he knew the information about god but now he was face to face with god and he's overwhelmed and he sees his sin and what's what's interesting is he starts to talk about his lips Like, why why in the world, in the presence of God, in this moment, are you concerned about your lips? Most scholars say it's because his lips show what's lying in his heart. It's what Jesus would say later in Matthew 15. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Right? In other words, Isaiah, on the outside, he he looked like a good person. He, He looked like he had everything together. He was a prophet of God. He was someone who, his, his vocation was to tell people about God, and, and he, he was this holy man until he came into the presence of the Holy One. And then he sees. He sees his heart as he stands in God's presence, and he sees stench. He sees defilement. He sees corruption. He sees death. Right? Seeing God forces us to see our guilt, our guilt, and it takes the Holy One to help us see our unholiness. It takes takes being in the presence of incomparable beauty to see our own blemishes sometimes. There's a man who, um, he was a theologian, He uh, he said this, his name was John Gerstner, he said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. He's saying, well, why is it so hard to see our sin? It's because we're blinded by our goodness. We're blinded by our own sense of righteousness. We, we've done all the right things, right? We, we go to church on Sundays. We, we read our Bible. We pray. We parent our children. We, we work hard at our job. We vote for the right candidates. We make sure we give money. We, we do all these things. We make sure we're a good person and we still miss God. Why? Why? Because we're blinded. We're blinded by the goodness in our own life that we have trouble seeing the guilt. I mean, if you're honest, some of us, we, we have trouble seeing and identifying our own sin. Maybe like 20 years ago when you first came to Jesus or five years ago or whenever that was, but, but today, like, could, could you really identify the sin in your life? If not, it's because you've taken your eyes off God. Mm -hmm. Off of God. Because when we take our eyes off of God and we put our eyes on other people and we start comparing ourselves to other people, then, yeah, I mean, we're we're a little bit better than that person in that area, we're a little bit better than that person in that area, and I'm a little bit better than that person. I'm, I'm not going to compare my whole life to every person, but I'm picking out the ones that I'm better in certain areas, and And as long as I compare myself in those things, then I feel pretty good about myself, and I don't have much to say about my own sin. But, but when you get into the presence of God who has no blemish, who is holy, 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 perfection, 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 then you start to see some things. And you compare yourself to Him and you see, wow, those fears that are below the surface that, that are causing all these emotional outbreaks in my life. Wow, the, the judgmentalism in me towards people who, who disagree with me or have different views than me. Wow, where, where did that come from? Or, Man, the, the arrogance at which I, I approach my, my co-workers and think about their work versus my work, or all these different things right the self-righteousness that comes out in my parenting towards my teenagers as i forget all the things that i've done in the past and i just can't see it because i don't compare myself to god i'm comparing myself to other people but now i see it now 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 it's coming out and and listen the grace of god's holiness is to let us see it it's it's to open our eyes to reveal what's already there that Let me tell you, other people probably see it. Other people probably see it. Your your spouse probably sees it. Your closest friends probably see it. Your boss probably sees it. But it's the grace of God and His holiness to to expose to us what's there, both about Him and about us, to to remove the blinders. Because you'll you'll never fully know yourself until you know God fully, right? And it works the other way. You'll, you'll never know God fully until you start to deal with knowing yourself. But it's seeing both of them that, that reveal to us, that help us see. And one indicator that we've truly seen God is, is humility. All right? we, stop, we stop putting ourselves above others, but we're now with others. You see that? Like We, we come in agreement with the woe being not just for other people, but for me. That the the woe that's pronounced by God for our sin is not just a problem out there, but it's a problem right here. You're not worse than me, you're with me. I'm not worse than you. I'm with you, right? We're in this. We're, We're both unclean people. No matter where you lay your head, no matter how far you went in school, no matter what your paycheck says, no matter how often you get high, no matter how long your marriage lasted, no matter what is going on in your life. Unclean and unclean. But you can't see that until you see God. You can't see it. But then when you see Him, listen, when you see God, and then you're finally able to see your guilt, you're now ready to see grace. That's how that works. You have to see God, and then you have to see guilt, and then now you're ready. God is ready to help you see grace. And this is the last point. Look at verse 6. Isaiah goes on to say, Then one of the seraphim, that's the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is now taken away and your sin atoned for. See, the great tension in the text is right here where where you have this moment where God is coming in contact with an unholy Isaiah. And what's going to happen to Isaiah? Isaiah. Is Isaiah going to survive? Isaiah doesn't think he's going to survive. He says, this is the end. Woe is me. My life is over. I'm going to die in the presence of God. But he underestimated God's grace. And God moves towards Isaiah. He doesn't leave him in this destruction, but he moves towards him. And he he sends the angel to, to take a coal from the altar at the temple. And the altar at the temple is alluding to the sacrificial system. Right, where they would have these animal sacrifices that would point towards the coming substitute in Jesus, and the animal sacrifice would be what substitutes for the people's sin, so that they would offer the sacrifice to atone for their sin. And so he sends this angel with a, with a coal, and the coal is coming towards him, and, and it touches his lips. Remember the, the lips representing the depths of his sin in his heart, his whole being. It touches and He says your guilt is removed and your sin is atoned for. That word atoned for in Hebrew means to pay a ransom price. It it was the cost associated with justice being satisfied. It was saying that every debt you owe, everything that that is put upon you is now removed. You are released. It is satisfied. You are done. You are forgiven. You are atoned for. It was settled. But who paid the price? It wasn't the angel. It wasn't Isaiah. It was God himself. God himself saying, I will pay for you, and you'll be clean. See, grace, grace is what happens when God touches our guilt. When God comes in contact with our, un- our unholy guilt, grace happens. There was a man named Edward uh, Lockard who discovered a whole new way of doing uh, detective work. And uh, he he was born in France, I believe in like 1800s, late 1800s. He was called the the Sherlock Holmes of France because he did all these cutting-edge things where he was kind of uh, creating new ways of gathering evidence. He, He was the one who invented fingerprint ID and all kinds of really cool things. But one thing he's famous for is his principle of exchange. And he came up with this principle saying that any time two things come in contact, there's going to be an exchange. That it's going to leave behind some substance that we can now use as evidence, right? This is the kind of thing we take for granted in today, but this was cutting edge back then. And one person described his principle like this. It said, wherever he steps, wherever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will be a silent witness against him. Not only his fingerprints, or his footprints, but his hair, the fibers from his clothes, the, gra- or the glass he breaks, the blood he deposits or collects. This is evidence that doesn't forget. It doesn't forget. He summarized his principle like this. Every, tra- every touch leaves a trace. Every touch leaves a trace. In Matthew chapter 8, uh, we, we find Jesus interacting with a leper a man with leprosy who came to him and he falls at his feet. And if you don't know what leprosy is, uh, in, in the Bible there was these, uh, these uh, people who would come to Jesus constantly with leprosy, and it was unique because lepers were, were uh, basically segregated from society because of their disease. They had this disease that would cause all kinds of skin deformities and, and their, uh, their body parts like fingers and feet and toes and all kinds of things could get so numb that they would lose them. They would fall off. And, and so often their bodies were deformed and, and people would push them to the side of, of society. They didn't want anything to do. They would create these colonies for the lepers. And in fact, any person who was a, a leper, they weren't allowed in the temple because they were unclean. And in fact, if they came in the presence of other people, they had to pronounce their presence by literally shouting, unclean, 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 everywhere they went. So that no one around them might get this leprosy. So this is the man that comes to Jesus. This is the man who's desperate, separated, and and falling at his feet. And he says to Jesus, he says this, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. And the crowds surrounding Jesus, they're watching on. They're, they're wondering what Jesus is going to do because no one touches lepers. No one even talks to lepers. And here's Jesus in front of all the crowds, and he reaches out his hand, and he touches him. He touches him. He touches the untouchable, the unholy the one that everyone else had given up on, the, the one that had given up on himself, that anyone else would ever love him, ever look in his direction. He touches him, and then when he reaches out and touches him, he says this, I am willing, be clean. I am willing, be clean. See, Jesus came to, to do for us what God did for Isaiah. That's what Jesus came to do. What God did for Isaiah in touching him and making him clean and wiping him out, Jesus is saying, I am coming to do that very thing, not just for Isaiah, but for every one of you. He came to be the Holy One who might touch our unholiness because he's holiness in human flesh. He is the one whose holiness touched our unholiness at the cross of Calvary, the Lamb who was crucified in our place, the one who was the sacrifice himself, who came to pay the ransom for us, who came to pay the price, who came to lay down his life so that we would be made clean. He said, I came to touch you. The worthy for the unworthy. The holy for the unholy. The the one who could satisfy justice for all. God paying the price in the most surprising of ways with himself. Himself. But listen, every touch leaves a trace. The the gospel miracle isn't isn't only that God touches and takes away our sin, but that he leaves the trace of his holiness. That he leaves, uh, when Jesus touches your life, when Jesus has contacted your sin, when Jesus has reached out to your brokenness, he leaves behind his holiness. He leaves behind his righteousness. He leaves behind his healing, his cleansing, his redemption. It's what we call the great exchange. It's to say that God doesn't just come to, to take away your sin, he comes to take your place and to give you himself his holiness. His beauty, His perfection, His cleansing. So that we who cry out, unclean, I am a man of unclean lips, woe is me. He says, no, I make you clean. I make you holy. I make you mine. It's His cleansing touch. It's His holiness that forever changes us. So, as we close, have you... Have you had that encounter with God? Has He touched your guilt in Jesus? Because you might be listening to this, and and, uh, whether you call yourself a Christian or you're not a Christian and you're trying to figure out what you believe, all of us have been in that point where, like Isaiah, you're just overwhelmed with your sin. You're you're overwhelmed with with who you are in the presence of God, and it leaves you in this place where you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. It seems like this is the end. This this is doomsday. It's over for me. What do you do? Well, we do what the man with leprosy does. We fall down at the feet of Jesus and we say, if you're willing, cleanse me. And we hear his voice say this, I'm willing. Be clean. Be clean. The beauty of the gospel is at any point, you can do that. You can do that. You can come to God and say, "I don't know what to do with this. I don't. I'm seeing myself in ways that I've never seen myself before. I thought I was all right, but man, look at all this stuff." He said, "I'm. I'm still willing about that, and I can still clean that, and I can clean this, and I can clean that, and I can clean anything you bring to me. It can be clean because I'm the Holy One who took your place." Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the good news that you move towards us. That you don't leave us in our unholiness. You don't leave us in our uncleanness. But you move toward us. You make the first move. You seek us out. You pursued us here coming to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, that we might be made clean. And so Lord, as we now sit in your presence and we know that Your Holy Spirit is already at work opening our eyes to see what we couldn't see before. Maybe it's big things, maybe it's small things, just the words that come out of our mouth like Isaiah. But whatever it is in your presence, God, we know it needs to be dealt with. And so we ask for the grace to bring it to you, to turn towards you in repentance and faith and lay it at your feet that you might make it clean.